Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropeneurs of the regenerative movement, people who are committed to and showcase qualities of planetary leadership. My name is Julian Guderlei. I'm committed to a world that allows people from all walks of life to thrive. I'm your host and creator of the Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. And in today's episode, my guest is Shauna Shapiro. Shauna is a professor at Santa Clara, Santa Clara University, a clinical psychologist, and an internationally recognized expert in mindfulness. Dr. Shapiro is the recipient of the American Council of Learn Society's Teaching Award, acknowledging her outstanding contributions to education, and is a fellow of the Mind and Life Institute, co-founded by the Dalai Lama. Dr. Shapiro also lectures and leads mindfulness programs internationally and has brought mindfulness to pioneering companies, including Cisco Systems, Google, and recently LinkedIn. She has also published over 150 articles and book chapters and is co-author of The Art and Science of Mindfulness and Mindful Discipline, a loving approach to raising an emotionally intelligent child. And recently she published her newest book, Good Morning, I Love You, with mindfulness and compassion practices. So with these words, welcome Shauna. Thank you, Julian. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for a few topics we're going to explore and, you know, uh, mindfulness and, and the way we approach life, I think, is a very, very important skill of resilience in, you know, an ever-changing world and the, and the world that, you know, is, is increasingly being led into a regenerative way. So, so maybe, you know, maybe let's backtrack a little bit in, into your story because I'm really curious to hear how this path started to unfold for you and where you felt this click, this moment of like, this is purpose and I'm going to follow this. Mm, yeah, it really was like that where there was kind of a, a, a click. Um, I was 17, so I was a teenager. I was quite young to be introduced to this, but I just had spinal fusion surgery. So I had a metal rod put in my spine and ended up being in a hospital bed for six months. Um, and it was during that time of a lot of physical pain, but really emotional pain and fear of the future and fear that I wouldn't recover, um, that I was introduced to mindfulness. And it was just like you said, it was this moment where possibility arose again, that, that I could be happy again. And as I started practicing mindfulness, um, little gaps of peace started kind of interspersing themselves between the pain and the fear. And eventually when I recovered, I went to Thailand and Nepal and went to monasteries there and really dove into the practice in an experiential way. And the kind of transformational experience that I had while I was there led me to go back to the United States and get my PhD because I wanted, wanted to understand what I had experienced. I wanted to understand the science behind it and see if I could teach it to others. So I've been doing that for over 25 years now, and um, it's been pretty extraordinary. Wow, that is quite some adverse circumstances to start out that, that journey. And I, um, yeah, I want to acknowledge you for finding that pathway and, you know, following that all the way, all the way through to now shared with literally millions of people that have watched your TED Talk and, you know, you're like lecturing and sharing at universities and also at big companies. I think it's it's an interesting one where, you know, we're at the intersection of, yeah, maybe like esoterics and spirituality that actually are influencing the way business and mainstream can evolve into a more holistic way of, of, of living. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think that's what's so exciting right now is because of these decades of science, 
that we're able to kind of um, bring this mainstream and that mindfulness really, really is a new way of being and perceiving and relating that can start to change organizational structure and, and help us do things differently. Yeah, more vital than ever to do things differently in a way that allows people to thrive, allows the planet to thrive, and allows uh, also non-human beings, you know, that live on this planet to thrive. Um, yeah, my, you know, my next question for you is, is, is an interesting one that I've been on the pursuit of since I started this podcast. And it's all about, you know, moving at the speed of trust. And so mm -hmm. I would love to know from you how you experience trust and what is required for you to, to give your trust. Oh, what a beautiful question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. And um, so trust is, I think, at the foundation of everything. And I think first we need to learn how to trust ourselves, that something shifted profoundly for me um, maybe about a decade ago when I had this, this realization that I trusted my good heart, that I trusted myself, and that I would always be here to catch myself. And there was a freedom that emerged out of that. Um, and, and I think trust is kind of fundamental for big change that, that we're all being invited to kind of trust our good hearts, trust the practices that we're using to kind of, as you said, kind of build resilience and build resources that help us perceive the world differently, that help us come up with creative solutions that we, we couldn't see before because we were kind of lost in our stress and our fear. And so I think, trust is at the foundation of evolution. And it's, it's interesting because to feel trust, we have to have that sense of safety. Mm -hmm. and, and that this is really, for me, at the foundation of mindfulness is that there's this sense that mindfulness is like my protective suit in the world. And it gives me the tools to meet whatever comes up. So mindfulness is this way of being present um, and paying attention with curiosity and kindness that allows me to meet sadness or fear or anger or joy with kind of greater wisdom and clarity. Um, so a long answer to the, the question about trust. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's, that's brilliant. And it, you know, trust is a very deep topic. And I think multiple people have tried to kind of pick, pick it apart to have us understand better how we um, you know, go into this relationship of trust. But I think it, it really requires us to continue to be an inquiry about in this stage of our society as we, you know, can increasingly not trust media sources and online media and, you know, maybe even institutions at this point um, and, and need to relearn this. So the, the personal experience of it, I think is, um, you know, sometimes even overlooked. So you did something really interesting there right now where you started to define what mindfulness is and how it helps you. Do you want to um, maybe expand and unpack this a bit more? What is mindfulness to you and what is it not? Or, or how can people kind of maybe demystify this idea that mindfulness is a, um, you get perfect state and I, maybe hopefully I reach it one day. Yeah, so I'm so glad you asked because I think mindfulness has become so popular and so mainstream that in some ways we're doing it a disservice because no one really knows what it means. And so I think defining it is important. And in fact, I've spent a lot of my academic career writing about what mindfulness is. And my colleagues and I created a model of mindfulness that has three key points. So mindfulness 
is this awareness, this presence that arises when you're intentional, right? So your intention is knowing what's important to you, why you're paying attention. You, you learn how to pay attention in the present moment. That's the second one. And the third one is your attitude of how you pay attention. So paying attention with kindness, with curiosity. And mindfulness is really all three parts working together. So intention, connecting with your values, attention in the present moment, and attitude. And what's interesting is, you know, the attitudinal piece is the one that has been most often overlooked. So people think of mindfulness as this like cognitive mental attention, right? Learning how to kind of laser focus your attention. And that is important. It's important to focus. I mean, probably if those of you listening, you've noticed your mind has wandered off and that's natural. You know, our, our mind wanders about 47% of the time. So about half of our life we're missing. So learning how to train and stabilize the mind is really important. But for most people, when they're paying attention, they're doing it in this very critical judgmental way. And I think especially of ourselves, we're constantly judging ourselves, feeling like I'm not good enough, I'm not doing it right. And so that's where this attitude is so important, this attitude of kindness and of curiosity. Because when we're judgmental and we're shaming of ourselves or others, what happens is it shuts down the learning centers of the brain. So when we make a mistake and we judge ourselves, we're literally shutting down our learning centers and robbing ourselves of the resources we need to learn and to, to do it differently. And that's where this attitude of kindness is so important, especially now, especially as we're trying to create a new world, as we're trying to create a new system of being, it has to include kindness. It's the only way to really evolve because with kindness, we're not afraid of making mistakes because we realize mistakes are just learning. We're just learning this is one way that doesn't work. Yeah. So mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, please go ahead. I'm I'm just super curious to dig dig in. There's into a lot it. in there. I know I said oh, so yeah. much. So so to make it simple, mindfulness is being present with kindness and curiosity. I'm going to, I'm going to dig into the word kindness a bit and maybe challenge it. Cause I've, you know, I, I grew up in, in, in Europe. I've lived in, in South America, I lived in North America for the last 10 years and um, San Francisco and in Canada and really come to understand that culturally our personality mind complex that often comes from a cultural conditioning interprets kindness in different ways. And so there is like a trap that kindness can present when we um, have the expectations that others should be kind to us in a specific way that we um, have learned culturally. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just to challenge it a little bit more. Um, and sometimes when we build resilience, which is a very strong and required um, leadership skill, I believe in this time where our uh, state of the world is you know difficult at the very least for for still a lot of the people on the planet as well as for you know our environmental impact i think sometimes the diamond sharpens the diamond mm -hmm. and so um you know the the, the 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 danger of misinterpreting kindness i think is is where i'd, I'd love to go into yeah and so so just let me finish my train of thought yeah. i i know you're you're, you're ready to go so good <laughs> but but I think curiosity, I can see how that is like un, unmistakable, you know? Yeah, so a couple of things. One is being precise in our understanding of what a word means is so important. 
So I wanna clarify that kindness does not mean passive resignation. Kindness does not mean allowing people to continue injustices in the world. What kindness means, um, first of all, the way that I was using it is how you attend to the experience so that, and really your own internal experience, that's the only experience we can have. And so that there's a sense of welcoming whatever's arising. Even if what's arising is anger at injustice in the world, we kind of hold it with our kind and curious attention. And the curiosity is really important. So I'm glad you picked up on that. But it allows us to see things clearly because when we are constantly judging, as I said before, it shuts down our learning centers. It also puts us into a state of, of fight or flight or stress response which narrows our perception and narrows our ability to think systemically. And so this curious kind attitude isn't about being nice. It's about creating the best chemical environment in our brain to learn, to create, to pivot, and to innovate. And it's also not about expecting someone else to be kind to you. It's about meeting the present moment with your own attitude of kindness. Does that help clarify? Absolutely. I just really enjoy the the inquiry there. I think it's it's very clear what you're sharing, and and yeah, it's it's great to really distinguish between the the external experience and our expectations, and then what we can actually control our internal experience and the way we we speak to ourselves. We you know pay attention to things, and we kind of come back maybe from habitual thought into presencing, and from presencing into a holistic interaction. And what you just said is so important because so much of it is about our internal narrative, how we speak to ourselves. And what you'll notice if you pay attention is often that's not very kind. And so what this kindness does is it really unlocks our potential because when we're kind to ourselves, it releases dopamine. It bathes our system in this neurotransmitter, which both turns on our motivation centers and our learning centers. And so the kindness, it's not um, papering over what's happening. It's actually allowing us to meet like the darkest parts of ourselves and the darkest parts of this world with this courage and grace because we're not gonna shame ourselves. We're gonna learn from it. Yeah, powerful. Very important step to move beyond uh, that negative self-talk. So I'm, I'm curious and let's go into curiosity a bit more. I believe that curiosity is like an innate quality of consciousness. It's present in all of life. It's present in children, especially when we, you know, don't indoctrinate or program children to just follow industrialized education systems. And so, you know, you, you, you wrote a book, How to Emotionally Raise Emotionally Intelligent Children. So I'm, I'm really curious about, um, you know, curiosity, your, your take on, on education. And so my question for you is, how would you, if you could, single-handedly or with a team of experts change our education system at large? Yes, I love that question. Will you help me do it? <laughs> um, so I think, first of all, I think we need to better understand the process of learning. We focus so much on content in schools, but not on how do we learn. And so if you teach someone how to learn, then they're going to continue learning throughout their life. And so there's really no point in kind of focusing solely on memorizing content. We need, to, we need to look at what are the environments in which, which we learn and what are the, the kind of mechanisms of action? What are the key processes that our children need 
to live a meaningful, thoughtful, curious life. So part of it is teaching resilience, right? Part of it is teaching cognitive flexibility, the ability to pivot within your own mind and look at different perspectives. Part of it is learning how to be compassionate with other people and also with ourselves. And so for me, mindfulness is kind of at the heart of all of these skills that we have to be present, open, curious, um, and connected to our intention, to our values in order to develop these kind of superpowers of living life. And so I would wanna see education teaching our children these skills through, you know, there are science-based practices that help you cultivate attention, that help you cultivate empathy. And, um, you know, one of the studies we did at the university was I was really interested in how do we teach ethical behavior? How do we teach moral reasoning? Mm -hmm. And so we compared a mindfulness intervention, so this was college freshmen, so a mindfulness training versus kind of an educational training. And we were looking at their ethical decision-making. So do you drink and drive? Do you practice unsafe sex? Do you cheat on exams? You know, all these things. And what was interesting is that the mindfulness training after two months, we found significantly improved ethical decision-making and that this continued for another two month follow-up. And, you know, people asked, well, well, how did you do that? Because in the mindfulness training, we didn't talk about ethics. I never said don't drink and drive or practice safe sex. It wasn't like a top-down moralistic hierarchical, this is good and this is bad. What we did is we learned how to listen to ourselves. We learned how to pay attention. We learned how to feel so that when I did something wrong, I noticed the consequences in my own being. And then instead of shaming and judging myself, I was kind and curious. And in this way, they kind of learn this bottom up process of making decisions that will last the rest of their life. And so I would like to see that in schools. I would like to see us teach our children how to learn and how to listen to their own wisdom so that they can continue to kind of pivot as life requires. You can't just memorize how to act in life. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's, it's always dynamic and flowing. A hundred percent. And that's also what helps us both in easy and good moments and as well as in adverse and challenging moments. The moment we know how to listen to our inner authority, our intuition, our intelligence centers, now suddenly we're equipped to, you know, navigate um, any challenge or any celebration. And I love that you're bringing up the celebration too, because you're right. Mindfulness is not just a way of navigating life's stressors and life's trials. It's also this kind of awakening to life's joys and life's beauty and and when you know you know when you know this feels right this feels good and you move in that direction yeah i love the conversation we're having and definitely let's make this happen anyone who is listening feeling inspired about the education system from what just came up let's continue to expand the limits here i think there is um the sky isn't the limit i think it's an infinite universe of infinite multiverse of of how we can you know change the way we you know talk to ourselves we talk to children we allow people to move into purpose and that's what brings me to my next question and just in your own words like how would you describe and define purpose hmm. so again purpose is for me related to intention it's like what is my aspiration what is my purpose what is my meaning and I think so often we become disconnected with what my true purpose is. And we 
start living our lives on automatic pilot. We're just kind of going through the motions and we get swept up in the current of culture and society. And so I think it's really important to pause and to listen deeply. What, what is my true purpose? What, what is my calling? What is my, um, my sense of meaning in this world? You know, I've always been very deeply inspired by Viktor Frankl, one of the um, one of the brilliant psychologists, and was in Nazi Germany during the concentration camps. And this sense of that that meaning is at the core, purpose is at the core of our life. And if we have a, a purpose and a reason for living, that everything else is possible. Yeah, let that sink in. That's a deep one. Yeah. Yeah. So. Just to change it up a little bit, you know, um, I want to know what are your three favorite places in the world that you've traveled to, that you've lived in, that gave you joy? This is a great interview. I love the kind of range. Um, so the first place that comes to mind is Esalen in Big Sur, California, one of my just homes in this world. And um, the first time I was there was when I experienced the um, practice of Good Morning, I Love You. And, um, and actually felt this kind of self-compassion and this kindness really, I think for the first time in my adult life. And I attribute part of the opening um, of my heart to Esalen because the lands are so magical and the, you're in these mineral hot springs over the Pacific ocean. And it's just this, this very raw, very beautiful landscape. So that's one for sure. Um, another place that I love in the world is Nepal. I did the um, Annapurna Loop in the Himalayas and mm -hmm. that experience also just awakened and opened me. I remember reading once um, a meditation teacher said, if you can't meditate, travel. <laughs> that meditation will open your mind beyond anything you could ever know, but traveling is, is, is definitely next best. Um, and gosh, the third place in the world um, is my hometown, Laguna Beach. Um, there's something that is so sweet and so innocent about, you know, I've grown up there my whole life. And every time I come home, there's that little girl part of me that probably doesn't get to exist very much out in the real world. Um, I just feel her. I feel that kind of exuberance and um, childlike state. So I think those are my three. Thank you for taking us to those three places for, <laughs> for a short moment here. Um, I'm curious about your encounter with the Dalai Lama. Can you tell a little bit of a story about that? Like what, what, what happened for you? Was it, you know, what, what was the emotions that you experienced? What was interesting is I was of course very excited and nervous before meeting him. Um, and there was so much, you know, security to go through and oops, sorry, so much, um, you know, there's a lot of drama around it. There's all, all these people. And yet when he walked into the room and we were actually in the moments of meeting, there was just total peace and joy. And he made some joke about the fact that I was Jewish and that I was teaching these Buddhist practices. And he's like, oh, that's very funny. I like that. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I just remember the, the lightness of being um, mm -hmm. that, um, that really he carries with him. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love feeling people's experiences and impressions when you know there's just this this hard and space opening and altering kind of experience um, and i think that's what this presence does is that it's 
I've been thinking a lot about this actually, that, that just by taking care of this moment, you're directly impacting the next moment. And so it's your presence and your being that's impacting the moment more than anything else that you do. And I think about it a lot when I'm teaching, because of course I have my agenda and I have my, you know, scientific facts that I want to get across, but it's really the quality of my presence and my energy that, that impacts people and that allows the learning to happen. And he has mastered <laughs> presence. He really has. Yeah, that's that's why he came uh, came back as, as that specific incarnation, right? <laughs> I like that you're saying this because what what um, you know when you said you're teaching, there's this this moment when you become aware that your quality of presence is what is the actual you know like the biggest um, input into all the content as well. And so I experienced that in interviews um, too when you know when I'm just relaxing into the present moment with with no real agenda other than to have a really good time with the person that I'm getting to meet. Um, it, it's usually the interviews that turn out the most fun, the most exciting, the most listened, the most downloaded, because that's where the energy is just really something that, that people get, get to take yeah. away from as well. Yeah. And for me, it always comes because I, you know, I like to do things right and I like to please and do it perfectly. And so for me, it's this reminder constantly of like, relax 5% more, soften your body 5% more and letting there be that kind of playfulness and that ease um, instead of trying to do it right or trying to do it perfectly. Let's talk a little bit about your new book. Um, Good morning, I love you. Like the reason why you wrote it and you know what, what, what the feedback you're getting from first readers and, and, and all the goodness around. Good morning, I love you. Mm, I love talking about it. I have to say it is it is a book of so much joy. Um, in fact, when I decided to write it, it I, I hadn't planned on it. It was really because my TED talk had gotten so many views so quickly that that a different people reached out to me to write a book. And I remember it, you know, they wanted it pretty quickly. <laughs> and I remember saying to my mom, I said, I'm not gonna write this book unless it's out of my joy and my gratitude because these teachings they're so precious and they've impacted me in such a beautiful way that I want the words on the paper and the energy um, that I exude as I'm writing it to be in alignment. And so the, for the first three months, I didn't even write. I just, I just kind of, you know, actually it's, it's funny. I have this journal here sitting with me and I was looking through it because after my surgery, when I was about 18 or so, I started writing in journals every day. And so I had this bookshelf of these beautiful, all different colors and um, jewel journals. And so for those first three months, I just went through them. Like what, you know, what was the story of this, you know, monastic experience and what was a gem that impacted me here. And I just started, I, and I got so excited and inspired um, really. And there was this sweet kind of, um, you know, I saw my little, you know, teenage girl and in her in the hospital bed and not able to walk. And I, there was like this compassion and then this kind of pride and how she recovered and what she had done. And so writing the book was um, this incredibly healing journey of taking the best practices, the most beautiful teachings and all of the science that we found over the last 20, 25 years and kind of putting it in a little manual for someone else to kind of pick up and say, this is what works. You know, this is, this is what will help both in dealing with your traumas and your pain and, and your challenge and also awakening to your joy. 
And so it's been amazing that I, I've been saving every single letter I've gotten. I've gotten over 200 letters of people just writing about their experience of reading the book. And these are from total strangers. It's been so fun. Um, and they're, they're just beautiful um, insights and they're all very different. Um, so I just feel so happy that somehow it's reaching so many people. Yeah, it's definitely times on the planet right now where this is needed more than ever because 2020 really allowed, I believe, more people than we could have imagined to take a step back and deeply reflect on life, maybe in a, in a somewhat forceful way. And, you know, we, we don't need to get lost on that today in this conversation, but I think there's a big opportunity there. And, and that is that from that space of reflection and introspection, there is a, an opportunity to create this bridge into abundant joy and living in abundant joy and then bringing that abundant joy to what matters most in terms of the, the, the social change, the systemic change, the environmental change we want to see in the world. Absolutely. You know, the, the word crisis um, means both danger and opportunity. So I love that you brought up the word opportunity because this has been a, a global crisis and the and danger is here, but there is this opportunity for really reevaluating and, and kind of realigning with kind of the compass, right? Our heart's compass, like what direction do I want to head? And I think, you know, the work that you're doing and bringing to so many people is really what's needed is, is having people reflect on where are we going and in, in what direction do you want to set that compass of your heart? Would you say that that's one of the most important things to do at this time in our evolution as well? Like, you know, like looking at the state of the world and understanding that there are some crises and kind of depressive elements very much alive and in our face. And so every human can feel them on some level, but really I think it shouldn't render us powerless, but quite the opposite, inspire us to new action. And so what do you, what do you reckon is one of the most important um, steps forward for us as individuals and as a collective species? Well, I, I think that our attention is our most precious resource. I really do. I think, you know, people often say it's time and or money or whatever. It's, it's really our attention. And so I think really training and stabilizing our attention and reflecting on where do I want to put it? This, it your attention's your life. And so that's where this kind of intention or deep reflection on what's the most important thing to focus on. And um, it's amazing to me because I'm certainly at a, a phase of my life of like, where do you put your attention? How much attention do I put? We have four kids, right? <laughs> How much attention do I put on my work? How much attention do you put on self-care? How much in service? And I think, again, going back to the study on, on ethics, it requires deep listening. It requires this generous, kind, open, curious listening where you're constantly, you, you can't just decide one day. It's like, you have to be constantly listening and realigning and, and kind of recalibrating a bit because it's, it's gonna keep changing. Yeah, I'm nodding my head for anyone who isn't seeing the video because it's, it's landing deeply. And this is also the journey of podcasting personally in my life. It's, it's really primarily in my experience, like a self-development tool of continuing to live in inquiry of continuing to meet extremely interesting people and, and their journey and understand how through listening there, you know, my own, um, you know, desire and craving to be a lifelong learner gets mm -hmm. satisfied. Uh, and actually a lot of the topics that, you know, 
are really hard to solve with the mind and the right and wrong thinking that, that are the challenges of our current modern age, they become much more palpable and accessible when we start from inquiry, when we start leading with curiosity. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's, in me personally, there's, there's still often an amount of frustration with how the leadership of the world is doing quite the opposite. But I think it doesn't change that it is a very obvious pathway forward for so many of us now that the inquiry, the curiosity is what will lead us to to a very different way of taking care of ourselves, of each other, of all people, right? And of the planet itself and kind of immerse ourselves into a a transition phase of change and emerge into a a species in a a different state of harmony with with this planet. I think that's so important what you said. And I think you know, uncertainty is is hard for a lot of us when we try to control things, um, but uncertainty is what leads to this infinite possibility, right? When you're certain, when you know, it's like two plus two, you're certain it's going to be four. It just is. It's a, it's a mathematical, you know, equation. And so we, certainty equals zero possibility. This uncertainty where we need to go in with inquiry, with curiosity, that is what actually opens us to infinite possibility and infinite solutions that that this mind of fear and greed and isolation couldn't possibly even conceive of. Mm. Yeah, and then suddenly one plus one becomes 11, <laughs> right? In, in at least a metaphorical sense. Right. Um, yeah, let's, let's, let's go and a little further and zoom out on, on, on the timeline a bit and, you know, um, maybe get a, a, a bit esoteric here for one of my last questions. And, and that is, you know, um, our way of being stewards and ancestors of the future. So um, if we were to zoom out for seven generations and you were to just feel what is your vision for the species, for this planet, the dream that is alive within your soul, what comes to heart and what comes to mind that you, you feel called to share in this unique moment? Yeah, what a beautiful question. These are all so new. And I think, you know, there'd be two things. As one, I think love would be at the center of everything, of every decision, of every choice, of every action. And there'd be a way of living that was so fundamentally rooted in interdependence. So fundamentally that that was that was the basic understanding of, of this universe is how deeply interdependent we are and that all of our choices and all of our decisions and all of our actions were coming from those two core constructs of love and interdependence. Yeah, powerful. That's a very powerful piece of the equation. You know, I, I like to say that humanity is not here to leave no footprint we're here to learn to leave a graceful footprint and right now is our awakening uh, around understanding how how horrible our footprint has been for a while and so that that awakening into interdependence is what allows us to see and recognize ourselves as a keystone species on the planet that actually when we live in harmony biomimicry and um, alignment with the forces of nature as nature right not externalizing nature um this interdependent becomes our biggest joy. Yeah, yeah. May it be so. Maybe so, Sean. I'm having a great time with you on, on this on this interview. And so, um, I have I have two more questions. And and one just comes back to, you know, abundant joy, and happiness. And so, just in a few words, 
what is happiness to you? Um, happiness is an unlimited, right? I think a lot of times people think that happiness is limited and that if this person's happy, I can't be happy. So recognize that it's this unlimited commodity and that, you know, I think a lot of our own happiness comes from practices such as gratitude and generosity and, and also taking joy in other people's joys and successes. There's a practice called mudita where you literally take joy, you practice focusing on someone else's success. And we start to recognize again, this, this fundamental interdependence that your success and your happiness is mine. And for me, I think happiness is often elusive. One, because we're very poor predictors of what will make us happy. It's called poor affective forecasting. It was coined by Danny Kahneman, who's a Nobel prize uh, winning economist. And Basically, what we found is that people aren't good at predicting what will make them happy. Mm -hmm. right? We think that more money or another car or something will make us happy. But what the research shows is, is changing our external circumstances doesn't make us happy. And what truly changes our happiness levels is the interior environment, which is, again, why I focus so much on this kindness and curiosity, that we have this interior world of kindness and curiosity that begins over time to carve out these new neural pathways of happiness. So I think um, for me, happiness is underrated. We don't focus enough on it in our educational world and our academic world and our daily lives. And I have been really focusing on it a lot and cultivating it, that, that not just waiting for it to happen, but actually, actually creating practices and, and pathways that allow for it to keep growing. Boom, that's such an important piece of it. It's a massive insight. Like, don't wait for happiness to happen to you, but cultivate it, right? Learn, learn to put your attention and your focus um, yeah. inward and outward in a way that actually allows for the pathways of happiness to form. Yeah, I think that, you know, what um, Bhutan came up with this uh, National Happiness Index and New Zealand is, is one of the countries that's running with the well-being index. I think between happiness and well-being, uh, our economy could have some really interesting um, pieces of leadership or metrics of leadership. Absolutely. And you just mentioned it's it's internal factors over external factors, but kind of maybe a mix of both both of them. My last question is, if there were three things or, or people or circumstances in your life that you would not want to miss, that are just an integral part of your life, of what's coming up? Um, well, I think one of them was, was kind of being in the monastery and having the that kind of awakening to a totally different reality um, at such a young age, it just, it just completely uprooted my life and went like that. And I'm so grateful I was going in a very, very different direction. Um, I will say in terms of people, my grandparents, um, I'm so grateful that I didn't miss them. They've been a huge part of my life and in raising me and, um, they're still with me, even though they've both passed. I feel them and I feel them guiding all the time. And they they never meditated. They, they were very traditional grandparents, um, but their curiosity and their, their love of life and their appreciation for joy definitely um, taught me a lot. Um, and I think, you know, the, the last thing is um, my husband, William, he, um, 
he's taught me unconditional love in a way that I didn't even know was possible. And it um, has allowed me to do so much deeper work and so much deeper healing in this world than, than I could have ever done alone. Beautiful. Shauna, thank you so much for your time, for your insights, for all the you know thought-provoking uh, inspiration you shared with us. Um, I'll make sure to link out all of your projects and your website and your book in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to share as we're closing this episode? No, it was such a joy. I'm so grateful. And if anyone has any questions, please um, email me. You can reach me at drshaunashapiro.com. I always respond, I promise. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Here we are. This is your host, Julian. Thanks for listening. I hope you truly enjoyed this episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast and received some insights, knowledge, and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life, relationships, and business, and the way you show up as your best self for the world. Did you know that we just launched a participatory Patreon asking you for your contributions of content and gifting a monthly subscription to our shared mission? The Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, video interviews, and community is growing, and together we can make it count and carry big ripples. So go and check out the Patreon. It's linked out in the show notes of every episode. The Patreon for Green Planet, Blue Planet, and the community we're building together. Thanks for choosing to support with your time, money, or content. And that being said, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe, review the show, share it with a friend, spread the love, and have yourself a stellar day. All the best. Mm -hmm.